This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following recording may or may not include instances of words being said that the FCC would find me for if their long arm could ever reach. It's Wednesday, July 17th, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Snapped up snapper. Shy town takedown. Gator grabbed. Yes, an alligator who had been swimming in Chicago's Humboldt Park for nearly a week was captured early yesterday morning. I like the name they gave him. Chance the Snapper, all five green feet of him, was nabbed overnight. Frank Robb, the Florida man, yes, Florida man finally makes good. Frank Robb tried to explain to the Chicago media in a simple way so that they could understand how he caught the gator. The thing is, the Chicago media, most of them have never been anywhere south of Aurora, so I think this explanation maybe didn't go as far as Frank Robb would have wanted. Uh, it's like uh, kind of like foul hooking a fish, like throwing a grapple hook over something. You throw a hook We're across it. And, We're yeah, going to show you. It just it brings him in, kind of just sits against his skin and brings him in. Uh, yeah, the fall hooking fish. Easy as setting a North American double snap clap trap for your average marmot. Rob was then asked about his own skill set. Everybody's got different blessings. Uh, this is my blessing. It's what I've spent every day of my life doing for the past 24 years. So, Which led to this honor. Yeah, only in Chicago. Does every city have the only in thing about it? Do they say this in Topeka? Only in Topeka, kids. I guess it is true, though, technically speaking, that only in Chicago would you get to throw out the first pitch in Wrigley Field. Then only in Chicago, after that week-long gator hunt, would the guy who finally hooked that critter get asked to throw out the first pitch here at Wrigley Field. You know, urban centers love stories of intrusion of the natural world. Escaped calves and pigs on the Grand Concourse in the Bronx that is guaranteed to make the news. Even if your classic city animal does a classic city thing, say a rat interacting with a slice of pizza, that will get attention. Of course, we're pizza rat in Chicago trying to grapple with thick crust pizza. He'd have to search out a knife and fork and the rat would have probably tragically succumbed to the heft of the pizza. But there is one aspect of Chance the Snapper that enthralls me. It is his name, Chance the Snapper. And everyone just loved for the last few days, everyone loves saying Chance the Snapper. Chance the Rapper was asked about Chance the Snapper on The Tonight Show, his namesake from the lake, and Chance the Rapper had some fun with it. They got you locked down, they can have your body, but they can't have your mind. <laughs> So it, it is funny to me that we all love Chance the Snapper because you realize Chance the Snapper, that counts as a pun. And aren't we all supposed to hate puns? Defensive puns, that is a cause of mine. You may have noticed that over the years. But we are supposed to or generally dismiss them and groan at them and deride them as dad jokes. So why not this one? Why not Chance the Snapper? Aha. Maybe it's this. The things we think of as uncool about a dad pun, maybe it's not the act of punning. Maybe it's the reference itself. Maybe youth, oh, callow youth, 
the guardians, and to some extent, the gatekeepers of cool, simply want a reference that speaks to them. Maybe. I mean, isn't calling the Beyonce fans online the beehive? Isn't that a pun? Don't the believers call themselves the believers? Why isn't that lame? I have a two-part answer. A, it's because it's a reference that resonates with the kids, and B, it is lame. Well, at least it's lame to me. I would have called that creature alligator capone or some such thing and i would have been wrong because while everyone has a different blessing mine apparently does not include naming reptiles after the perfect hip-hop artist of the moment on the show today i spiel about donald trump is he loki el diablo or a giant japanese catfish you'll want to listen to that but first gina mccarthy was the head of the epa for five years under barack obama turns out things aren't going as well with the environment since donald trump came into office But that has not made her any less impassioned or confident. Gina McCarthy, up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So in the history of our government, there have been a couple of cabinet officers who are actually serving in departments that they'd like to eliminate. Rick Perry famously wanted to eliminate the Department of Energy. He's now Secretary of Energy. Before him, Bill Bennett was against the Department of Education. He was named Secretary of Education. But then we get to the Environmental Protection Agency. It's not as if the Trump administration wants to eliminate the environment. They're just doing nothing to protect it. Well, one woman who uh, helped protect the environment as President Obama's director of the EPA from 2013 through 2017 is Gina McCarthy. She's now professor of the practice of public health in the Department of Environmental Health at the School of Public Health. (laughs) <laughs> at Harvard and the director of the Center for Climate Health and the Global say, do Environment. Do you get the health part? Yeah, there's some yeah, health yeah, involved. Yeah. Hello, Gina. Thank you for coming in. It's good to be here, Mike. That's not a incidental point. To talk about environmentalism is essentially to talk about public health if you're talking about it right. That's one of the first points I made was yeah. basically it's great that it's called the Environmental Protection Agency and I've worked for an environmental agency all my life, but they happen to be public health agencies. We measure our success by clean air and clean water, lives saved, kids without asthma attacks. I mean, we love birds and bunnies. It's just not what we do. Right. And it was important to emphasize that because people, for some reason, think that we might be superfluous or our day has passed or everything's fine and right, we don't right. need or it more anymore. About Protecting the snail darter than protecting your kid. You know, this administration is not even paying attention to the science. Right. That's among the problems. So every time this comes up and someone says, well, you know, we'd love to help the environment or not, but think about the jobs. You do have 50 years of tremendous job growth, and it's not like environmentalism was ignored. And also, it's not like you could point to so many industries that environmentalism won 
and that therefore all the jobs yeah. went away. Well, the, I think the challenge is that the industry in an effort to try to make sure that there's no intervention or in, in what they're doing for the sake of public health, many of the industries just over-exaggerate. They keep pushing, but they always do it. They always yeah. do what we ask yeah. as long as we're asking something reasonable. And the agency has progressed in a very reasonable way. I, I was just reading the paper the other day and Lee Iacocca passed away. Remember? He did Chrysler for it's a while. It's very important to my family well, as an so, Italian-American. Well, I mean, he was he was a great manager, but right. when, when EPA, th- you know, basically said, we got this catalytic converter that's going to clean up our air and let you keep going, he said it was the end of the automobile industry. Right. They always make those exaggerations, but we got to look at real facts and history, and the agency's done well. Except now, to underline how out there the Trump administration is, yeah. the auto industry is objecting, as you know, is objecting to the Trump administration's desire to loosen regulations. The auto industry wants more regulations than the Trump administration is advocating. Well, guess why? It's it's because we negotiated with them in the beginning to make sure that we were on a path that they could they could right. live with. You gave them certainty. We did. That's the issue. They're we not gave go- them right. certainty as well. And they don't have well. to create a different kind of car for California right. than they do for Missouri. And we gave them a length of time so they could think about how to rejigger their models yeah. and make sure they could have their fleets meet those standards. And we gave them flexibility to trade and do all kinds of things. So then who, so if it's true, and it is, that the auto industry is saying to the Trump administration, no, we don't want your loosened standards. What is the, oh, I, I, I hasten to put this on anyone, but what do you think the Trump administration's motivation is? Whose dirty water are they carrying? Like, in whose interest are, for instance, these uh, auto regulations that the industry itself doesn't even want? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I hesitate to try to bring any sense of order to the chaos that's happening in Washington today. Look, they're trying to roll back what we call the mercury and air toxic standard, which is to eliminate mercury that's getting into our air from power plants and 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 basically getting in our food supplies, mm-hmm. and it's a neurotoxin to our kids. Yeah. It really is a danger. We have all kinds of advisories all over the country on this issue. And we did a rule that was finalized in 2011 and finished retrofitting every single unit out there in the power sector. And they said they're just fine with it. And they actually wrote a letter and said, please don't count us in on on this rollbacks. We're just fine. And they're still doing that. So you tell me. It's Hmm. just they're they're just obsessed with undoing everything Obama did. You can tell this with Trump. You know, he's still somehow campaigning against Obama. Right. It seems to me, uh, I've read a couple of the things that you've said, and you are not sanguine about the actual impact that the Trump uh, administration has had, but you also seem to be saying that he is, or they are, at, in many ways, being undone by their own incompetence. Yeah. So how, how does yeah. that uh, play out? Well, I, I think all you need to say is, is two words, and it's Scott Pruitt to, mm-hmm. to recognize that he just didn't follow any of the rules. So most of what he did actually never got done. They have like an 8% 
you know, success rate in the courts. So only 8% of their initiatives, yeah. the, the, the thing they, you, you read about them in the paper, mm-hmm. you say, oh my God, how could that happen? Yeah. And 92% of the time it doesn't happen. That's right. they're not good at what they're doing. Now, so, yeah. so I'm comforted by yeah. that, but sur- only to a certain extent. I mean, it is, br- it is not sending clear market signals. It's not telling the outside world and the innovators that actually drive new technology development what's of value to this country. It is making us look like I don't know. Is nincompoop still a word that people <laughs> understand to yeah, the outside world, to the world, to the to the, yeah. <laughs> to the wor- you know to the rest of the world? We just dropped our leadership on these issues. Climate change, I think, has brought a, a level of animosity to the agency because it's become an, an incredibly partisan issue. Incredibly partisan. It's always been difficult for EPA because you have shifts. But if we're arguing policy, that's entirely different than arguing science with politicians. Right. Um, Let me ask you about the Green New Deal. There are a couple aspects of it that are every environmentalist I know says that's bold and it's where we need to be. But are there aspects of it that are unrealistic? Well, I, to, to me, I look at the Green New Deal as a, as a challenge, uh, as an opportunity, as a builder of energy around the issue. Is it realistic? There's no pathway right now that they have identified or that I know of anybody has identified to actually get to all of those goals all at once in the time frame they've indicated. Right. The problem that I have with dismissing it or even thinking that it needed to be as realistic as you're talking about is that people need to have goals. Right. <laughs> people need to look at what a healthy future looks like and go to it. I'm sick and tired of 40 years of trying to scare the hell out of everybody as if people won't deny that there's a problem. That's what every human being does. If I can't fix it, if it's global, if it's about polar bears, and you're telling me I've got to change the entire energy system in which the world operates, yeah. I'm going to tell you to go pound sand. And that's how most people did. They said, oh, whatever. <laughs> You know, so I, I like the energy it generates. I want people to have a goal to shoot for. So I cannot really criticize the environmental movement for wanting to push in an issue where science tells us we're friggin' running out of time. Yeah. We, we got to move. Um, in my state, in this state, the state you're sitting in, we, I'm saying we, it was my legislators. They passed what is being hailed as, you know, one of the most aggressive and progressive uh, environmental bills ever. How much can the states, and Texas isn't there, and that's uh, the second biggest state, you know, in terms of, in terms of uh, pollutants, but how much can the states make up for inaction on the federal government's part? Well, you know, the way that I've always looked at it is I've looked at, I've worked at the local level and, and the state level and the federal level. I actually worked for six governors. Five of them were Republicans, but they were New England Republicans. Yeah. Okay. So maybe it made a maybe a breed of a different a different color. Yeah. yeah. Like, but, like but, Mitt Romney, who the, when he was I a worked Republican for Mitt Romney. Yeah, yeah, there you go. So but but the thing to remember is that that the federal government generally, you know, is really slow to act. It's not designed to be fast, you know, a, a government of by and for the people sort of inches forward. It's made to be fairly conservative. Mm-hmm. You know, that's sort of what we have to do. You have to build a constituency. So every big leap forward I've ever seen was built on the foundation of grassroots folks, 
pushing for things they needed. And then it pushed states, it pushed regions, then it pushes the federal government. So I don't at all object to the idea that when the federal government isn't playing, there is nothing to be done. I think that's when the opening happens. If you look at what happened in order to provide us an understanding of how to use energy efficiency and renewable energy to actually uh, think about designing a carbon standard for power plants, which was called the Clean Power Plan, it was all based on what was already happening. And that happened because states pushed at a time when the Bush administration was doing nothing. And EPA had hundreds of people in little closets <laughs> helping the states work through these things. Yeah. And and so there, there's so much that can be done, and it's almost like it's been a wake-up call. You have states all over the place. You talk about Texas. I agree with the pollution, but they are one of the top states in terms of renewable energy today. And now there is a, a huge shift, uh, I think, in, in some of the western states, like Colorado, New Mexico, Nevada. You are now seeing them, people be a lot more open about the fact that clean energy is actually beneficial. And what I think people need to do is, is start demanding it because coal now is too expensive. So why aren't we saying if you don't have renewable energy, then I'm getting cheated as a consumer and I'm getting cheated because of the health impacts of fossil fuels? I want to, I want to ask a question or two specifically about the EPA. Yeah. It strikes me that that is an agency that has more uh, control of its subject area than many of the other agencies. Yeah. I think the EPA can do a lot more with the environment than, say, the Commerce Department can do yeah. with commerce, or even given how education is funded, the Education Department. Would you agree yeah. with that? I think that's that's probably true in some really major ways. I mean, we work with the states, but there are some things that don't basically fall within political boundaries, like air is one. Yeah. So the Clean Air Act gives the federal government primacy. And when we have that, we set health-based standards and states have to act. We work with them on how to act so that they can take reasonable steps forward. But there is no question that EPA has a lot of engagement uh, with, with states and with communities, unlike many of the other federal agencies. Now, if you look at it, EPA has regions that where we have human beings that actually are policy people that can regulate on their own, mm -hmm. that have relationships with every governor, good or bad or indifferent. And so we have a presence regionally that no, no, other, no other federal agency has. They've all just become paperwork places. How many employees? Uh, EPA had almost 5,000 when I was there. I think they're down to 4,000 or maybe even less now. We haven't made great strides when it comes to combating climate change, but we have made great strides in other environmental areas. Yep. Yep. And the smog in L.A. is, you know, remarkably not, different. Not entirely dissipated, but there are many, many clear days. I do find that as a society, we have trouble giving ourselves credit, but isn't the issue of climate change a little harder? Because we're not going to see it as readily. Yeah, it is. That it, it's it's harder in so many ways. It's harder because it's about the planet. So immediately people feel like I can't fix yeah, it. Yeah. You know, what are we going to do about the planet? You know, it's always projected as a polar bear and a glacier issue. Every time the news is on talking about something, that's what you see. Drives me crazy. Absolutely drives me crazy. You know, it's just not that's not how I you want to talk they about show it. A polar bear on an ice floe and I have no frame of reference. I'm like, wait, in the 70s were there no polar bears on and, ice floes? 
seems like I've been watching National Geographic all my life. There's always been a polar bear. There is. The, and it could be the same polar bear you're it's looking like at every footage, every yeah. single time. <laughs> and, and, you know, and it's about something that, that we're projecting will happen in 2030, 2050. Yeah. You know, it, it, the, the only difference is today that we are actually seeing and feeling some of the consequences. And I don't think people need to be as convinced. There are many, many people that understand it. What we really have to do is is send all the right signals that we want to lead in the solution set, that there are solutions we need to uptake. There's new breakthroughs we need to make without question, but that that future is, is worth it. And doing nothing is extraordinarily dangerous. Do you eat meat? And if so, do you feel guilty about it? I do, and I do. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we just got married. So we go, um, you know, I do uh, less than I used to. Um, for environmental, yeah, environmental well, reasons? Yeah, well, health too. Yeah. You know, what you find is what's good for the planet is probably good yeah. for you as well. So well, I'm trying really, to do better. really, really environment has a big environmental It has impact, a big right? footprint. Yeah, it yeah. does. It, it has a big footprint. And, and from health perspective, you know, the more that I talk to the nutritionists over at Harvard, the more I'm like, oh, damn. Mm. I really got to get my act together. And to be honest with you, Mike, you know, I just turned 65, right? So I'm eating to stay a little bit more healthy, but it's not, you know, the— how much more I can get out of it, I don't know. But I, I have, I just had my second grandchild who was born last week, July second. Congrats! A little girl named Evelyn Rose, and she's lovely. And my grandson Dax was just born ten months ago. That's who I'm doing this for. <laughs> you know, I, I there are things that in, individually we can do. There's yeah. things as communities we can do. And if and I want people to identify people they care about that we're supposed to take care of. And I want to take care of them. And I, and I, I just because I'm 65, it doesn't mean for the next 20 years that I'm not going to be obnoxiously trying to get <laughs> on your show and talk about these issues because, damn, I will be. And maybe the next time I can answer, I certainly don't even And how me. dare you, yeah. Yeah. Gina McCarthy was, from 2013 through 2017, the director of the EPA. She now teaches all the subjects at Harvard. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's great to be here, Mike. Thanks so much. And now the spiel. Trump is like some nefarious god of legend who can call down calamity but not control it. He is like Thor but with a total inability to direct the lightning. It's just as likely that he'll get singed as the rest of us, but he's willing to take that risk. He can't not. Donald Trump can set the house ablaze with aggressive use of racist tropes and allegations, but in a sense, it does work for him. Because once loosed upon America in 2019, talk of racism, any talk of racism, any debate of racism, any condemnation of racism becomes a thing that no one can control. And Trump knows this and Trump uses this. And since he's in a position to lose, it just might be a strategy that he could use to not lose. Now, I said Thor, I talked about Thor, but I've been investigating the appropriate myth. In Norse mythology, it was Loki who caused earthquakes. Trump is a lot like Loki. Now, don't think of sexy Tom Hiddleston Loki. Think of how the Norse thought of Loki. His face was hideous and a source of folly. So Loki winds up being bound by the entrails of his son. Oh, yes, this was his punishment for killing another god. You know, maybe if Mueller had more evidence, he could have bound Trump to his son's entrails. So imagine if Eric was turned into a wolf. I've seen the haircut. It fits. That's what happened to one of Loki's sons. And then... 
Eric tore into Loki's other son. In this case, it would be Don Jr. And then they took Don Jr.'s intestines and they chained Donald Trump to a rock to be attacked by a poisonous serpent. Right? The serpent in the myth drips poison on Loki. And like Trump, Loki mainlines the poison that he himself courted. And all he could do is shake it off in fits of rage. And that's what causes earthquakes. Or maybe Trump is more like El Diablo an Indian god who made a giant rip in the ground so that he and his friends did not have to abide by the rules of mortal man. It's like Trump not walking the back nine, but taking the cart off and onto the green itself. El Diablo ripped into the earth to save time, wound up causing a great calamity, and he did not care. You could say he benefited. No, I would have to say the god, the earthquake-causing god that Trump is most like is Namazu. In Japanese mythology, the Namazu is a giant catfish who lives in the mud. So he's a dirty, scum-sucking bottom dweller. And when the guardians of that society take their eyes off Namazu, just like with Trump, he thrashes and causes violent earthquakes. So this is Trump. He's causing the earthquakes. He's not controlling them, but he's letting them loose and leaving everyone else to panic and scurry and to take cover. Now, the Democrats tried to do the right thing. In the squad's press conference, Ayanna Presley said the exact voice, the exact right strategy. I encourage the American people and all of us in this room and beyond to not take the bait. And Nancy Pelosi was right. It was proper to introduce a condemnatory resolution. But still, it is tearing apart the left. Today, Jake Tapper had a thread where he quotes anonymously a lot of Democratic housemakers who are saying just that. Trump is winning, one of them said. This is tearing us apart. And it can't not. A group of representatives today tried to introduce impeachment articles based on Trump's smears. Here's Representative Al Green of Texas, who introduced these articles of impeachment. This president has committed impeachable offenses. Yesterday, we condemned him for them. Today is our opportunity to punish him for them. And for those who might say, well, if you do this, uh, there may be some people who won't like you. Well, there are times when you have to do that which is neither safe nor politic nor popular. You have to do it because it's right. But I would also say this. If we voted yesterday to condemn him, those who are not going to like you are not going to like you any more today when you vote to impeach than they will if you vote not to impeach. But the vote not to impeach or to table, parliamentarily speaking, won the day. Did it cause a deep fissure? I don't know, probably not so deep, but it did serve to delineate 95 Democrats from 332 other members of the House. So it was another example of disunity brought about by President Trump's admonition for four members to go back to their home country. You'd think that would cause unity against him. It did not. And here's what's lost. Well, there's so many other things we need to pursue, not just policies that maybe given the current complexion of Washington, D.C., will never get passed, but just other things to think about and attend to. The stupid tariffs on China are still in place. Can we spend a couple of days noting that the president had a sad, sad failure on the census? It was cruelty undone by incompetence. And because of that, William Barr is in contempt of Congress. Wilbur Ross is in contempt of Congress. Let us examine that. Let us not spend another day focused on racism. Although actually the census had elements of racism too. Of course they did. They came from Donald Trump. But I agree with Representative Presley. We can't take the bait. Here's another one. 
Today it was revealed that the administration was actually pressuring Alex Acosta as labor secretary to adopt dozens of anti-union rules. Apparently, Acosta resisted, largely resisted, and it is unclear what, if any, side Donald Trump was on. He did praise Acosta for a job well done, yet anti-union forces within the White House, specifically in the person of James Shirk, who coordinates labor policy for the White House's Domestic Policy Council and is a Heritage Foundation guy, was pressuring Acosta to enact this conservative to-do list. The New York Times reported on this today. They said that the list included proposals to weaken collective bargaining rights and to weaken protections for workers on federally funded construction projects. Also, I found this interesting, I think totally ignored, and it was in the New York Times, fairly big paper. Shirk and Heritage, being socially conservative, they wanted Acosta to enact one specific piece of regulation, a rare example of dot-in-the-wool conservatives being in favor of a regulation as opposed to wanting to undo all regulations, and this was the regulation they wanted. They wanted Acosta to require male actors in pornographic films to wear condoms. There is no sense on where the president stands or stood on any of this if he stood at all. We don't know how much he knows about the chaos he oversees. We do know that the president would literally be a hypocrite if he did favor requiring men to wear condoms when having sex with pornographic film actresses. Literally a hypocrite. But we don't know what, if anything else, he thinks has done or has undone about this pressuring of the labor secretary. I'd like to ask. I'd like for the inquiry to be put forth. I'd like to find out. I'd like to maybe subpoena, and I'd like to hold accountable on this and everything in general. And it is clear that Trump has a counter strategy. It's not a surgical strike. It's to thrash about and cause more earthquakes. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader, and the senior producer of Slate Podcast is TJ Raphael that I will read from a description of a painting that I came across while researching the catfish myth. This is from an article in Scientific American, figure four. A picture by the Japanese artist Kazusa Yaoazo in 1842, depicting the myth of Namuza, we see a tanuki, a mythical raccoon dog, with the ability to enlarge voluntarily parts of his body, subduing the catfish with his giant scrotum. Up next on What Next, and this, by the way, this placement, this is gold in terms of advertising, coming right next to the phrase giant scrotum. Up next on the Slate Show, What Next, Raylan Barton of Kentucky Public Radio talks about Mitch McConnell. What's his primary challenge? It's that he lacks charisma. Okay, he won't have a primary challenger, but in the general, there are a couple of Democrats who want to take him down. The gist. Now, I would say the most unnecessary part of the mythical raccoon with the ability to enlarge voluntarily parts of his body is the word mythical. Umpru depru dupru, and thanks for listening.